right, good to see you guys. So kids, you know the drill. Kids, you guys are dismissed. So preschool through fifth grade and then um, middle school and high school, you guys are also dismissed. You can head out with Pastor Chris and uh, bless you guys today as you head out. Um, so I, I don't mention this probably enough, but um, if you need anything from us, there are these little uh, info cards slash prayer request cards that we have out there in the foyer and you just, you know, shoot us your name and your email address if you want to be contacted or just your name if you just have a prayer request and you want to be prayed for. Um, we're here to minister to you guys, not to get anything from you necessarily. We're not trying to sign you up for stuff unless you want to be signed up for stuff. But there are plenty of these cards uh, back there. And um, I will say we're going to pray for you each week, whether you like it or not. So if you have specific ways that we can be praying for you or things that you're seeking the Lord for that you want us to partner with you um, in prayer about, then we would love to know that. So again, it's a prayer card on one side. It's an info or a contact card on the other side. Anything that we can do for you, we would love to know uh, about it and um, so that we can better serve you. So with that said, if you're visiting today, we're awfully glad to have you. And if you're not visiting today, we like you guys too. And we're glad that you're here. So uh, we've got an exciting study this morning, a brand new book to jump into. So let's just pray and uh, ask the Lord to really bless, especially bless this time uh, this morning as we get going. So Father, we thank you for today and we, th we do thank you for all that you're doing here within our church body. Lord, we thank you for all of these blessed opportunities that you provide throughout the week, Lord, and these other ways that we can grow in our fellowship with one another, Lord, and in our faith in you. And we pray um, Lord, just your hand of blessing on those things. Lord, we pray as well as we go to your word this morning. Uh, we pray that you would be our teacher today, Lord. We pray that that teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest amongst us here this morning, Lord. And we pray as we pray each and every week that you would just give us open hearts and open ears to hear what he would say to each one of us today. And Lord, we thank you. We praise you, Lord. We ask your blessing on this time, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen. So about, I guess, when I stepped in and took over as the pastor here at Calvary Mountain View, we were finishing up a study through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and at this point, that was nearly four years ago. And since then, we've been through the book of Acts, and we've been through the Revelation, and we took a quick trip, you'll remember, through the epistles of Peter, uh, then on to the book of Joshua, where we were for a few minutes. And now we've just finished up, of course, with Paul's powerful letter to the Colossians. And as I've been just really kind of praying about and seeking the Lord for what he has for us next, because I, I truly believe that God directs us into these various things that we look at here on Sunday mornings, and he does it uniquely and individually um, for each and every church body and, and you know, for us specifically, but as I sought the Lord, I just really sensed that he was speaking and just directing us back to the life of Jesus, and more specifically to the account of the life of Jesus, that specific account that we find in the gospel according to Mark. So you can turn to the gospel according to Mark. It's in the New Testament. It's the second book in the New Testament. 
you know, sometimes people will wonder, you know, why do we even need to have more than one account of the life of Jesus? Why is it that we have four Gospels? Why can't we just have one Gospel? And I would probably ask those same people, the real question, I think, is why do we only have four Gospels? Right? Why are there only four accounts in this inspired text of the Bible, only four accounts to describe the most important, the, the life of the most important person in all of human history? Why are there only four accounts to describe the life of God himself as he stepped into human history? Right? How many books are there on the life of Abraham Lincoln? Right? Or the life of Alexander the Great or the life of Cleopatra or whatever it is, you know, surely there are more than four on each one of them. And yet, God has chosen to include these four and only these four unique accounts of the life of Jesus. And each one of them looks at that life from a slightly different kind of a perspective and, of course, draws out a slightly different kind of an emphasis, but all about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John, of course, focuses in on the divinity of Jesus. The Gospel of Luke focuses on his humanity. The Matthew's account focuses on Jesus as the king, right? And specifically the emphasis on all of this fulfillment of all of those different messianic prophecies, the way that Jesus fulfilled them. And then the gospel according to Mark looks very uniquely and focuses primarily really on the works of the Lord Jesus. Because Mark focuses primarily on Jesus as the servant of God. If we were going to try to pick maybe kind of a, a theme verse, a key verse, in this gospel, it would probably be Mark 10, 45. You've heard me quote it many times. But uh, it says that, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So Mark reveals Jesus as God's servant. This servant has been sent to minister to suffering people and ultimately to die for the sins of the world. And so the emphasis in this gospel really is on activity. And it's a portrait, if you will, of God on the move, right? And Mark kind of paints this picture for us of Jesus as he busily moves from place to place and he meets these the physical needs and he meets the spiritual needs of all kinds of different people. We're going to see as we go through it that one of Mark's favorite words that he uses repeatedly in the gospel, he uses it 42 times in just 16 chapters, but it's that word immediately or and straight away. And we just have this sense of, of motion as Jesus moves from scene to scene and person to person, and he moves with purpose and he moves with this passion. And what we don't really find a lot of in Mark's account, we don't find a record of a lot of the teachings that Jesus gave. Because again, Mark's emphasis is more so on what Jesus did, more, th more so than what he said. Of course, both are of supreme importance to us. In fact, if you were to just thumb through, don't do it right now, but if you were just to thumb through and compare the gosp 
Gospel of Mark to any of the other Gospels, what you'll notice is that there's a lot less of those red letters in Mark's Gospel account. Now, I told you guys not to thumb through it, but you're doing it anyway, right? So do it, thumb through it, and you'll see there's a lot less of those red letters, aren't there? It includes a lot less of Jesus' teachings. There's no Sermon on the Mount recorded there. There's no Olivet Discourse. There's no Upper Room Discourse, right? We see far fewer of Jesus' parables, but we're going to see far more of his miracles. This is the perfect gospel for people who really like action, right? It's the shortest of all the gospels, as we said, at just 16 chapters. And really, it's this kind of a fast-moving presentation of the life of Jesus, which is really appropriate because Mark's primary audience was the Romans. And the Romans were a fast-moving people, right? And this explains why we're going to see there's only two direct Old Testament quotations in his entire gospel. And if we contrast that with Matthew, again, Matthew written primarily to the Jews, but in Matthew's account, we find over nearly 96 either direct quotations or specific Old Testament allusions that are included in Matthew's account. So it's really, it's the, it's the beauty and it's the brevity and it's this kind of a, almost a journalistic kind of a simplicity that really makes Mark's gospel the perfect introduction to the Christian faith. So much so that when people ask me, you know, where should I start reading the Bible? You know, where do I start if I want to read about the life of Jesus? I usually tell them, start in Mark. Right? In fact, when Bible translators go to a people group who don't yet have the scriptures in their own language, they usually begin by translating the Gospel of Mark which, of course, then would make the book of Mark the most translated book in the entire world. So there's just a little fun fact for you on a Sunday morning. And, and for all of these reasons, I think this is why the, the gospel of Mark is so appropriate, really, for our culture today. Because in our culture here, we are increasingly moving away from that Judeo-Christian kind of a culture, and we're moving increasingly, if you will, back towards a completely secular pagan kind of a culture where we can't just assume any longer that people have that same kind of a foundational understanding of spiritual things from any kind of a biblical perspective the way maybe they once did. It's almost like we've gone back, if you will, sort of full circle, spiritually speaking, and it's now, now we're trying to reach people here in our own culture who are much more like those people in those cultures of those unreached people groups around the world. And it's as we try then to do that, again, we've talked about the fact that this is such a strategic time in the history and in the life of the church, and I think that now more than ever before, it's absolutely essential that we have just this crystal clear understanding of exactly who Jesus is and what he's done, and what it really means to be his followers. 
You know, there's so much confusion about Jesus today. There's so much confusion about the word of God. And of course, we expect that there would be that kind of confusion out there in the culture. And yet there's so much confusion, isn't there, even inside of the church today? And of course, there's nothing that's going to help clear that confusion up any better than just going right back to the source. So we're just going to look at this gospel. We're going to make sure that we know who Jesus is. We're going to make sure that we know what he did. We're going to make sure we know, as we said, what it really looks like to be his followers, right? We want to see God on the move, right? We want to see God again serving and we want to see him ministering to the world. And we want to be reminded for ourselves what it looks like as we serve people the very same way that Jesus served people. Right? Because don't we, we want to be able to touch lives and to minister healing and to bring hope and to really infuse the power of heaven into our world in the very same way that Jesus did these very same things. I love the way that one author put it, sort of archaic language, but along these lines, he said that there's a freshness and a vigor about Mark that grips the Christian reader and makes him long to serve somewhat after the example of his blessed Lord. And we'll see even this morning in just our short text today, we're just gonna look at the first 11 verses, but we're gonna see what I believe are really the essential elements to Jesus' life and his ministry and specifically his life as a servant. Right? The essential elements to living and to serving the way that Jesus lived and served. We're going to see sort of what moved God on the move, or, or more specifically, what moved the ministry of Jesus. But before we do that, just a quick, and I, I do mean quick, I'll try to be quick. A quick word about this, this man, Mark. Right? This man, Mark, who was used as the human instrument to author this account of Jesus' life. We actually met Mark, coincidentally, right, together last week as we looked at those last few verses of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul was sending out these greetings to the church there at Colossae, and you might remember that he said that he was with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, right? Mark was one of his ministry companions there toward the end of Paul's life. They're with him in Rome, and Mark was ministering to Paul during his time of imprisonment. And we saw last week that this man was John Mark, right? So John would have been his Jewish name, Mark more so his Roman name. And this man who'd grown up there as a child in Jerusalem, his mother ministered to the saints during those days of the early church. The, the church actually met there in her home. So Mark, as a young boy, he was right there with a front seat of all of the action during these early days of the birth of the church. I mean, it was literally unfolding, if you will, in his living room. We talked about the fact that Mark's uncle was a man named Barnabas. He was one of Paul's primary early co-laborers in the gospel. He traveled with Paul on some of his missionary journeys and that they took John Mark with them on the first missionary journey. But unfortunately, we, we said as the going got tough, what happened? 
So did Mark. Mark got going, right? And he abandoned the missionary journey. He went back to Jerusalem. He left the team. He left the mission in a total lurch. So much so that, remember, years later, Paul and Barnabas got into a big disagreement about whether or not they should take John Mark along on this second trip. There was such a contention that Paul and Barnabas actually ended up splitting up and going in two different directions with Barnabas taking Mark and Paul taking Silas. Anyway, many years later, we saw that by the grace of God, Mark had been restored back to ministry and restored back to his relationship with Paul. We talked about him as an example of the fact that gospel people are reclaimed people, right? He'd been reclaimed to ministry and reclaimed to his relationship with the Apostle Paul. Now, what we also know about John Mark is that he had a very strong connection and relationship with the Apostle Peter. It was very likely Peter who led him to faith in Jesus, probably during those early days there in the church in Jerusalem. In 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter describes Mark as Mark, my son. No doubt his son in the faith. And then we believe that John Mark probably was discipled by Peter and then spent time later in life side by side, probably traveling and ministering right along with him, right up until Mark is there during Peter's eventual martyrdom, finally years later in Rome. So during this time, of course, Mark would have listened as Peter preached all of his sermons. He would have been right there and been a part of these, all the different kind of ministry interactions that Peter had. So much so that most understand that it was probably Peter himself who was the source for so much, if not most, of what Mark includes here in his gospel. So people sometimes ask the question, well, how come Peter doesn't have a gospel of his own, right? Matthew's got a gospel, and John's got a gospel. Of course, Peter was right there in the inner circle. Peter should have a gospel. But in effect, Mark's gospel account is Peter's gospel. And I think we're going to see it reads exactly like we would expect Peter's gospel to read. It's this fast-paced, no-nonsense, right to the point. And we're going to see, though, that there's so much vivid first-hand detail throughout it. And as we go through it, you really feel like you're hearing the words and you're feeling the heart of Peter himself as you study the words of Mark. Now, Mark himself, no doubt, had been an eyewitness probably of much of the ministry of Jesus, especially the ministry that happened there in Jerusalem where Mark lived. And in fact, it's interesting, when we get to chapter 14, Mark includes kind of this very strange two-verse kind of a note, right, as he describes the, the arrest there of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he includes this. He says, Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. So maybe this young man got up in the middle of the night, threw on this linen cloth. It says, the young man, uh, and, the, and the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. 
So here's this young man out there watching the arrest of Jesus in the garden. They try to grab him. They end up with the linen coat, and this kid runs out of the garden naked, and many people believe this is Mark's own personal reference to himself. And that this is really sort of his kind of a modest signature to the book. Maybe it's not quite so modest if he was running around naked in a garden, but, but you get the idea, right? This is his little autobiographical note in there. All in all, it, you're going to see it's this wonderfully, divinely inspired, well-written account of Jesus' life. I can't wait to dig in and really see what God has for us. And you're saying, okay, then stop waiting. Let's dig in. I get it. Let's do it. Verse 1, chapter 1, Mark's account. And I think it begins so characteristically, it cuts right straight to the chase. Look what it says there in verse 1. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, period. So here's this opening sentence, which you may have noticed doesn't even have a verb, right? But this opening sentence, it's kind of like the, the title, and it's the theme, and it's the purpose of the entire book all rolled up into one. Mark very clearly says he is writing to provide us with a record of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, he's giving us this written record of the life and of the teaching and of the ministry and of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, all of which, all combined together, constitutes the gospel. Right. Now, the word gospel, we've said before, it simply means good news, right? It means great news. And so what Mark's talking about here is the greatest news of all news because it's the news about our salvation. And I love the way in just this opening verse, Mark makes it so perfectly clear here that that great news of our salvation is found only in a person. Right? It's not found in a formula. It's not found in an institution, not a philosophy, not even found in some particular teaching. The gospel is found in Jesus Christ, right? a very uniquely qualified Savior who has then provided this gospel to the world. Think about it. If you try to remove Jesus Christ and his life and his ministry, if you remove it out of human history, then we have no good news left in the entire world in the face of our sin or in the face of our need for the forgiveness of our sins or in the face of our hope for heaven or of wanting a real relationship with God or simply of trying to discover the true purpose and the meaning of life. If you take Jesus out of the equation, we have no good news in any of those things. We have no understanding of those things, nothing good in those fundamental areas of life apart from Jesus and exactly who he is. And notice the way that Mark so succinctly yet so comprehensively describes for us exactly who Jesus is. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Those three descriptors are precisely what qualify him to provide this gospel to us. This is what qualifies him to bring this good news to all mankind and to provide this forgiveness and this salvation just as his name says he will. The name Jesus, 
is simply the Greek form of Joshua, which is short for Jehoyashua, which is short for Jehovah Yeshua or Yahweh Yeshua, which simply means what? God is salvation. Right? It's just, remember the angel, angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph just before the birth of Jesus, and he said this, he said, Do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So his very name, Jesus, describes what he came into the world to do. And that's he was born into the world as God himself in order to provide us with this salvation, right? To deliver us from our sin. Just as Mark further describes here, he says he's the Christ. Now, Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name, okay? It's actually his, his primary mission, right? The title Christ means the anointed one. Right? It's the New Testament term for the Old Testament, Mashiach, right? or the promises of the Messiah. Right? This one who was coming and who would save his people or who would deliver them. So Mark is very clearly telling us that Jesus is the Savior who was promised all throughout the Old Testament. Then Mark further describes Jesus, right, the provider of this wonderful gospel as the Son of God. Now this was a clear, it's the clearest declaration of his deity. He is the Son of God. He is God the Son. Now today, you probably have heard people say, well, you know, Jesus is only the Son of God, but he's not really God. And yet that's foolishness because anybody in that time who would have understood this clearly to be a claim to divinity. Think about it logically. You can't be the son of God and not be God because that means you have the very nature of God. right? So to be the son of God meant, and it still means, to be equal with God and to be God which Jesus absolutely has to be, or else he's not qualified to provide us with this salvation that he came to provide us with. Now, you've heard me say this before, but it's absolutely worth repeating again because this is at the very foundation of our entire faith. But again, people will ask, you know, why isn't it enough, you know, isn't it enough for me just to believe that Jesus was a great man or a great prophet or a great miracle worker or a great teacher or a great guru? And the short answer to all those questions is what? No. It's actually not enough to only believe those things about him. And the reason it isn't, because if that's all he was, right, if he's not also divine, then our sin problem remains unresolved. Because anyone who's merely a great teacher or a good person or a great example, they are not qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins that we desperately need. It's only because Jesus is divine. It's only because he is God that he is also sinless. And it's the sinlessness of Jesus that qualifies him to be our savior, right? His 
sinlessness is essential for our salvation because a sinner can't be a savior for other sinners. Right? He would have needed a savior for himself first. But it's because, like Peter says, Jesus is a lamb without blemish and without spot. Right? Because of that, he becomes this essential, perfect sacrifice for us to give his perfect life in exchange for our stained sinful lives. So that's the reason and the only reason that there can be a gospel that's attached to Jesus and that's the reason it's only attached to Jesus. It's because he's the son of God. Because he's the son of God who came to earth to serve us by laying his life down for us. So the very first thing that we might say moved the ministry of Jesus is simply the person and the mission of Jesus. Right? It's who he is. It's what he came to do to serve us. So now as we move on, because Mark's purpose is to emphasize Jesus in this role as the, the servant, he doesn't start with a big genealogy. He doesn't start with a birth story. He jumps right to the introduction of the serving. Right? He starts right in describing this public ministry of the Savior. It's an event which had been anticipated for thousands of years and was announced, we know, in advance by John the Baptist, right, who was the herald of this good news to come. Look at in verse 2 and 3. He's just talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, behold... I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So in one of these very few direct quotations from the Old Testament, Mark here quotes both Malachi and Isaiah combined into one verse in order to just anchor the arrival of Jesus and the start of his ministry, ministry squarely in history. So these are these prophetic promises about the coming of Jesus, right? It's part of what moved the ministry of Jesus. And what's interesting here is that Jesus' ministry really begins with the ministry of John the Baptist, Right? He was sent as the forerunner right, to announce the, the arrival of the, of the Messiah in order to prepare people's hearts for the coming of Jesus as the Messiah. And I believe that Mark starts here, at least in part, because this idea of the preparation of the path for an important person who was to come, this would have been very well understood by Mark's Roman readers. Because in ancient times, when a king or when a Caesar was trying to travel maybe from one province of his huge kingdom to another province of his huge kingdom, wherever it was he was en route to, they would make these great improvements in the infrastructure along his route, right? They would fix up all the roads in advance of his arrival we should probably find a king that would come up the 101, right? So we could get that thing flattened out, right? But they would, they would, all the deep dips in the road, they would fill up. Anything that was too steep, they would kind of level out. Anything they could do to make the arrival of this king more smooth. And it included 
not simply the preparation of the land physically, but there was always a herald who was sent out to announce the arrival to the people, to say, hey, look, the king is coming now, and you need to be ready for him when he finally arrives. And for Jesus, that herald was John the Baptist, right? John the Baptist was sent to prepare the world spiritually for the arrival of the coming king. And then now in verses four through eight, we're gonna see how he did that, right? How that was accomplished. Mark tells us a little bit more about that ministry. Verse four, he says that John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Then all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. I indeed baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, the ministry of John the Baptist, we could spend a month of Sundays on, right? It is as mysterious as he was, right? Everything about him and everything about it. First of all, just for this morning, this Judean wilderness where John was doing his ministry, this was a horrible place to try to draw a crowd, right? This is the area between Jerusalem and the Dead Sea. It's actually kind of all the rugged wasteland along the western shore of the Dead Sea, right? You can see it there. It's a very dry, kind of an arid kind of area, probably right down in the area where Jericho was, right? Where the Jordan River kind of feeds into the Dead Sea. It's a very rough, kind of tough area that he's ministering in. It's about 20 dangerous miles, right? It's a full day's walk outside of Jerusalem. And you have to walk right along the road that's the same road in the parable of the Good Samaritan where that man was overtaken and left for dead by these roadside thieves. So this place was a terrible place to try to draw a crowd. And yet, what does Mark say? He says that people were coming out in droves. And then, once they finally arrived out there, what did they find? They found this wild-eyed man in a crazy outfit who ate bugs, who was baptizing people. Now, understand, the baptism of John was not at all what we understand today as Christian baptism. Right? When we are baptized as Christians, it is this joyous celebration as we look back right, to this work that the Lord has already done in our hearts. But the baptism of John was very different because in the baptism of John, people were looking ahead to a work that they hoped would be done as they repented of their sins. Right? That phrase there, for, the repentance, uh, for repentance, for the remission of sins, it has the sense of leading to the remission of sins. So this baptism, very clearly, he's saying, this is just your first step. Right? This is a baptism of repentance. In Matthew 3, uh, he says that John called on the people directly. He said, repent 
for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now today, we don't like that word repent very much, do we? Because it has these images of some crazy guy in a thing on the corner screaming at people. But in the New Testament context, repent simply means to have a change of mind about the direction that I'm going in life. Or a change of mind about the way that I'm living my life or about the priorities in my life. It's to just have a change of my mind that then produces that change of direction in my behavior. And that's just what John's baptism was pointing the people toward. And understand, this is the huge significant difference between what John himself says he was doing there in his ministry and what he said that Jesus the Messiah was going to do in his greater ministry. Because John here says, look at verse 8, he says, I only baptize with water, right, under this repentance, and it just symbolized this desire to live a godly life, right, this willingness to try to do that, but John knew his baptism didn't provide the power to live the life that these people were longing for. But the baptism with the Holy Spirit that John said that Jesus would provide, right? that's what provides us with the power to live that godly life that we want to live. Right? It's the fire that fuels us. It's that fire that the Spirit provides in us. And the beauty of it is there is no limit to what it can do for us. Right? The power of the Holy Spirit is the power to live as godly a life as we want to live and to live it anywhere that we are called to live it, in any environment that the Lord might place us in anywhere in the world. It's exactly what Jesus talked about in Acts 1.8 when he said what? But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's what we need. And only Jesus can provide that as a part of this salvation through our faith in him. So John's baptism wasn't for salvation. It was only for preparation. And so when he was calling on these people to be baptized, it was just a physical demonstration of their desire to try, you know, I'm going to commit to turn from my sin, and now I'm just going to wait expectantly for the Messiah to come. That's what this baptism of John represented to the Jews. And understand, this was truly an amazing thing, and here's why. Because for a Jew, right, and that's who was primarily coming out to see John, right, the people in Judea and in Jerusalem. But for a Jew to submit to this kind of baptism, this was a big deal. Because the Jews, as a part of the law, they practiced a series of these little ceremonial washings, right, in preparation for religious rituals, right? But it was little washings, right? So a full baptism into the water down under the water, the way that John was doing here, that kind of baptism was reserved only for a Gentile who had decided they wanted to become a Jew 
and after a process of this intense preparation, they would complete the process with this kind of baptism. And effectively, symbolically, what it said, they were being submerged under the water to wash the rest of their Gentileness away so that they could then start fresh as they came up from the water, now as a Jew. So understand that for a Jew in John's day to come out here and submit to this kind of baptism, and a baptism of repentance no less, what they were saying essentially is that I confess as a Jew that I am as far away from God as a Gentile. I confess as a Jew that I need to get right with God just like the Gentiles do. So understand, this is incredible what is happening here. This entire scene is absolutely nothing less than a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. You've got this crazy guy in this crazy outfit at this crazy place with this crazy message, doing this crazy baptism, and yet look again in verse 5, Mark tells us that all the land of Judea and those from Jerusalem went out to him and were all baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And my point in all of this is that there was such a deep hunger within these people. Right, this kind of a quickening of their spirits by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. They were being drawn out to this place just to confess their sins and to get right with the Lord. And so one of the beautiful things that really moved the ministry of Jesus was this deep spiritual hunger for Jesus. Right, These people knew they just needed God. And it was God that they were about to encounter face to face, though they wouldn't recognize him. And all of it happening right out here in this crazy, barren, God-forsaken kind of a place. And I just think that that, you know, we today in the church, we place such a priority on the environment, right? And the presentation. And church has sort of become this event, Right? There's got to be lights and camera and action and then more action and more action and throw some slick media in right, to keep their attention. All just to trying to create this environment so that you can get people to sense God. Right? You want people to feel God and people are trying to produce this kind of an emotional response in the people. It is such a challenge now to get people just to come out to a church service where God is the main event, right? Where the message is just simple and straightforward and the messenger is some guy who's not even really that gifted, right? But he's just trying to declare something from God's word that, that God would be pleased to anoint and give life to, right? But when I look at John the Baptist in this whole scene, he is doing everything all wrong. According to all the church growth books that I get sent all the time in the church office, first of all, you got to walk 20 miles minimum, maybe even 30 miles down a dangerous road to get to this church service. When you get there, there aren't even very good facilities. There's no sound system. There's no worship concert. There's no air conditioning. There's no coffee shop. There's no petting zoo or pumpkin patch at this church service. 
And then you get there and you've got this John the Baptist here telling you that you're a sinner, telling you you have to repent. Why in the world would anybody come except that these people of Jerusalem and Judea, they realized in their hearts, we are not right with God. And we are not ready for the coming of the Messiah. We need to do something. And we need in our ministry in the church today, we need to simply trust in the spirit to go ahead of us and let him be the work that does that in the hearts of the people. We can't do it with lights and we can't do it with video. We can't even do it with great tech from our great tech team that we have here, right? We need to pray that the Spirit would do that work because that's how this kind of a mighty work in the kingdom happens. That there's this deep spiritual hunger for Jesus. This hunger for what he can only bring into a human life. There's that hunger that like when that person wakes up in the morning and they simply say, I am sick of living this kind of life. I'm sick of these sins that I'm engaged in. I'm sick of this kind of one foot in the world, one foot in the, in the kingdom kind of a thing. And now I want to know that there is another kingdom. I want to know that there's truly another place that I can go and experience something that's really different. Understand, they had all the gold and they had the decorations and they had the lights and they had the fog machines back in Jerusalem. And yet the multitudes of these people were so desperate for God to do something in them that they were flocking out there into the wilderness to see John. So much so that the religious leaders in Jerusalem are seeing the temple emptied out and they're wondering what in the world is going on here. And we know the other gospel writers tell us that those religious leaders themselves, right, they made that dangerous full day's walk. They come out to John and they say what? They say, what right do you have to do what you're doing? We didn't commission you. Who do you think you are? What do you think you are, the Messiah? And he says, no. And then he quotes this same prophetic passage from Isaiah to declare that he was the fulfillment of that promise. He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Messiah. And understand this. Those words from John, those were the first words to the Jews from the Lord in 400 years. 400 years, right? Nearly twice as long as we've been this mighty nation that we are, right? There have been 400 years of effectively dead silence from God in heaven. No prophetic voice at all. Malachi was the last prophet to have spoken. And since then, though the people did have the scriptures, they had no prophetic voice at all after literally centuries of God consistently raising up and sending out these prophets to the nation, one after another, trying to call these people back to himself. And then suddenly there's dead silence. A silence that has been deafening for four hundred years right and that same silence what it had done though it had developed this deep hunger within the people and just now that silence has finally been broken with the voice of this one man crying in the wilderness telling them that these promises 
are about to be fulfilled, you better bet the people were flocking out there to see him. And you know, maybe there's some of it, maybe you feel like you're in that kind of a place of silence this morning, right? You're asking, where are the promises, God? Where's the, the fresh revelation, right? And there's this kind of a deep hunger that you're feeling to hear again from the Lord because maybe for whatever reason, he has stopped speaking to you. Right? Maybe simply so that he could develop that sense of deep hunger and that desperation in you again to want to hear from him. And you know, for the Jews... During this time, right, this is that time that we call the, the intertestamental period, right? Fancy word for the period between the two testaments, right? The 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. But understand that during this time, for the Jews, things had simply gone from bad to worse, right? They just returned from captivity in Babylon. That's where we kind of end up. The, the Old Testament, they're working to rebuild the temple, rebuild the city, but then we know historically in come the Greeks, they trample Israel, they trample Jerusalem, and then the Jews come under one oppressive regi regime after another. The priesthood, we know, is becoming increasingly corrupt, so by the time we get to where we are in this account in the first century, things are so dark and the people are so burdened now with this oppression under Rome they are so desperately longing for the promises of God to be fulfilled and for them to be delivered out of this. I have to imagine that many of them, if not most of them, thought maybe it's just never going to happen. And then suddenly there's a voice, right? Just one voice crying out in the wilderness for people to prepare themselves for all of these things to be fulfilled. Right, calling them to turn their hearts back to the Lord in hope and to wait on the appearing of the promised one. And I think that maybe that's a word for some of us this morning. Maybe you're here and you have been waiting on a promise of a, a restoration or of a deliverance. Maybe you have even given up hope. Right? You've given up hope that God can come through in this situation. But I think that John the Baptist cries out to each one of us this morning to repent even of our hopelessness, right? To change our minds and prepare our hearts because Jesus is about to appear on the scene of your story in his timing and he's gonna set everything right. Look at what Mark writes for us next, right? So we're out here in this crazy scene this crazy place, this mysterious guy with this hope-filled message. And it says in verse 9 that it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. So onto this scene steps Jesus himself and he submits himself to John's baptism. And this marks the very beginning of what would be his three and a half years of public ministry before he'll end up being crucified and buried and raising again from the dead. Now, of course, Jesus did not need to be baptized unto repentance for the remission of his sins because he had none. But in submitting himself to John's baptism, Jesus was identifying himself with us. Right? In other words, as Jesus begins 
the public part of this mission as the servant of the Lord, he wanted to deliberately begin this ministry, right? This ministry that was about to include his death and his burial and his resurrection in order to provide mankind with this right standing that they so desperately needed before the Father. And this whole water baptism of the people, remember, it expressed their hunger to have that righteousness of salvation and so Jesus water baptism signifies his commitment now to provide that beautiful forgiveness and that salvation for their sins right he was going he was committing to them to provide the very thing that they were coming out into the wilderness being baptized in the hopes to attain and so here Jesus very deliberately, very purposely, he comes all the way down from the city of Nazareth. He makes this journey now down to where he knows John is baptizing for this very purpose. And think about it. You've got this huge line of people, right, who are lined up there for John to baptize them. And then suddenly John looks up and he reaches out for the next person to baptize them. And it's him. It's the Messiah himself. And I love the way that John tells us in his gospel. He says that John the Baptist declared right away. It says, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, how did he know? We don't know. Except that we know that the Spirit surely let him know. And here's Jesus standing there now after this 60-mile walk from up north, waiting to be baptized by John the Baptist. And as he was, it says in verse 10, and immediately, so there's the first of our 62 immediately's, and immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Now, I've witnessed some wonderfully powerful powerful baptisms but Jesus baptism this was on a whole nother level right with the heavens literally what it says there is that they were rent asunder or that they were ripped apart so that the Holy Spirit could gracefully descend gently from heaven it says they're like a dove and could come to rest upon Jesus now if you circle stuff in your Bible it's important to sort of circle verse 10, right? Or at least in your mind, because here with this water baptism, Jesus just also experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So the two don't always go together, but they can go together. And surely in this case, they did. Now, to be very clear, there was never a time in the life of Jesus when he was not filled with the Spirit, right? The Spirit was always in him as he lived here on earth as a man. But now here the Holy Spirit comes upon him to anoint him for service and to, to, to really endue him with power, right? This is providing him with that supernatural power for everything that he was going to do that lay ahead for him in his public ministry, including his life and his teaching and his death and his burial and his resurrection. So the number one thing, or I guess it's the number three thing that moved the ministry of Jesus was the 
baptism of the Holy Spirit upon Jesus. Right? So if Jesus began his public ministry with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, how much more do we need the same baptism of the Holy Spirit in order to be successful in our individual lives and, and our public ministries? Again, just like it's described for us there in Acts chapter 1, being baptized as the Holy Spirit comes upon us, right? Again, there's three relationships that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. This is not just the Holy Spirit being with us as he is with every unbelieving person, right? He's with them and he's convicting them of their sins. And it's not just the Holy Spirit then being in us, which happens at the moment of our conversion where the Holy Spirit indwells us and comes to live inside of us. But now this is that third possibility right that next relationship where the bible describes that the holy spirit actually comes down upon us right to strengthen us and to equip and to enable us specifically for a ministry that's ahead of us and and i think it's so important and we're about to swim in some pretty deep waters here but you guys are an exceptionally smart group of people so I know you're, it's important for us as we look at the life of Jesus to really understand that Jesus did not ever operate in his public ministry out of his deity. He just didn't do it. So, so you know, you can read the gospels and you can say, well, of course Jesus did that. You know, I could never do that, but he could do that because he's God. But he never operated in his public ministry out of his deity. Paul tells us in Philippians 2 that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. Another way to render that verse is that he emptied himself, right, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Though he never ever ceased to be divine, Right? Every minute of the three and a half years of his public ministry, Jesus continued to be God. But there was somehow in which he was able to set aside that heavenly privilege. Right, He set aside his heavenly glory. He voluntarily refrained from using his deity in order to accomplish ministry. We know that Jesus got tired. We know that he got hungry. So again, it's not so much about what he gave up as much as what he took on. He took on our human nature and then he chose to operate according to all of those same limitations. He took on human flesh and yet somehow still re retained his divinity. And the point is that he lived just like we live. He suffered like we suffer. He learned and he grew the way that we learn and grow. And yet he did it without sin. Right In Hebrews 4 it says that we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So understand, Jesus operated fully in his humanity. He navigated the fallenness of this life, and he did it with exactly the same resources that are available to us as Christians. He did it with the leading of the Father, right? He did it with the empowering of the Spirit through the baptism of the Spirit. Everything that Jesus did and taught was from the will of the Father, and it was done in the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And it was provided to him first right here at the baptism 
of the Spirit. So Jesus lived his life in his incarnation. He overcame all his temptations in exactly the same way that we do, right? Through the power of the Spirit, right? Like it says again in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's that upon word. It's the Greek word epi. It's the very same word Mark uses here. No one, can have had, no one can have any hope of living out the Christian life or of being fruitful in the Christian life apart from this baptism. But here's the wonderful thing about the baptism of the Holy Spirit is that no Christian needs to be without the baptism of the Holy Spirit. No Christian needs to try to live apart from this power because we receive it simply by asking, God, would you give me the power to be a witness for you in Jerusalem or in Judea or in Samaria and even to the utter parts of the earth, right? Whether you're right there at home or near home or a little further from home or maybe you're nowhere near home, right? You're on the other side of the world, but this is that power to live the Christian life as described in the word of God, right? To live it out in any kind of environment, whether you're at home or at school or in the workplace or wherever you might go. Right, wherever it is that God has placed you, Jesus says it's as easy as asking for it. In Luke chapter 11, he says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Right? He'll give this same experience and this empowering by the Holy Spirit. And all we need to do is ask for it. And we need to ask for it. Because I can tell you, without it, even just the New Testament can become such a source of frustration for Christians, right? They just look and they say, well, I have tried this, and it just didn't work for me. It might be working for those people, but this is just not working for me. And usually it's because they don't realize that they've yet to really tap into or to receive this fullness. Again, if Jesus needed to receive it, how much more do we? Val, I skipped ahead. I'm in the middle of 47 right now. Sorry about that. Lord, look at the time. So we have this incredible scene. We're almost done, I promise. We've got this baptism of Jesus. We've got the Holy Spirit coming down upon him. And if that weren't enough already, right? But wait, there's more. Look at our last verse, verse 11. It says, Then a voice came from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So here was this powerful witness of the Father, right? Audibly from heaven, that he was pleased with his Son and with everything that was happening in this scene. And notice in verses 10 and 11 that what we have is nothing less than all three persons of the Godhead. Right? We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all bearing witness of their unity in this mission here together at one time. So right at the outset of the public ministry of Jesus, one of the things that moved this ministry was the blessing of heaven upon it. And this is one of those super powerful passages in the New Testament that shows us the entire Trinity acting all together. And I'll skip over the verses, but for you Bible students, 
This is one of only three times in the New Testament, aside from the book of Revelation, that we hear God speak audibly from heaven. He spoke audibly only three times, and each time he pointed people to his son, Jesus. Okay, I'll do the verses. Here he says, you're my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then at the transfiguration of Jesus in Matthew 17, he says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And then looking ahead to the crucifixion in John chapter 12, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. It says, then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And of course, he spoke this about the coming resurrection of Jesus and the victory over sin and death that it would provide. And so the take home for us is that when God speaks from heaven, number one, it's going to be important. Duh, right? But it's going to magnify the person and the work of Jesus, the servant sent on our behalf. Right? So here's this incredible scene with the skies opening and the spirit descending and this audible voice booming. And it was like a, a declaration to everyone in the world for all time that everything you are about to see Jesus do, everything you're about to hear him teach has the full approval of the full Godhead. They're saying, hey, pay attention to him because he is now going to speak for all of us. He's now going to act for all of us. And so I think as we consider all of these supernatural signs that come along with Jesus' baptism, not only could we say that in Jesus' baptism, he not only identified with sinful man, but he was also baptized to be identified to sinful man. Right? All of these supernatural signs are pointing to him right here as he gets started to say, look, all of the blessing and all of the anointing of heaven is right here on this man. Right? And then with this mark of approval from heaven, John is now, Mark is now going to leave the ministry of John the Baptist. When we pick up together next time, we'll actually start the ministry of Jesus. And I know our time is out, but I want to leave you quickly with one more thought just to ponder. And I want you to take this thought home with you. And I want to let the Spirit minister it deep into your heart all throughout the week. And it's simply this. I know that it seems too good to be true. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, then those very same words that the Father, the Father spoke from heaven about his son Jesus, right? You are my beloved son, right? You are my beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. If you're a believer this morning in Jesus Christ, those same words apply to you as well, right? Because Paul tells us in writing to the Ephesians, that God has made us accepted in the beloved, right? So the, the final thing I think in our list that motivates, it's really the first thing, right, that moved the ministry of Jesus is us, the idea of us being accepted in the beloved because of what Jesus did, right? That's why he came to earth. That's why he went to the cross, so that all of us who've been adopted into God's family through our faith in that finished work of Jesus, we are all now beloved by the Father in heaven. And I bet you, you 
it's not going to be hard for you to guess what that word is in the Greek, right? Beloved. It's a form of a very familiar word. It's agape tos. The beloved. We are the agape of the Father. And he is pleased by us. Not because of us, but because we are in Jesus. Right? Because when he looks at us, he doesn't see us in our sin and in our failure and in our struggle. But what he sees when he looks at each and every one of us who've placed our faith in Jesus, he sees now this beautiful, perfect, sinless, spotless, wonderfully righteous standing that we have because of Jesus, and that pleases him. Right? You please him. He agapes you. Right? You are his agape tos. Right? You are his beloved. And please don't ever, ever forget that. Amen? So, Father, we thank you for this morning, Lord, and we thank you for this book, Lord, and we just look forward with a, a great sense of anticipation, Lord, and expectation, uh, Lord, of what it is that you have for us to minister to us through this, uh, through this gospel according to Mark. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless this study. Lord, I pray, pray that you would bless these people. Lord, I, I pray for... For any of us, Lord, who sense that there's a, a, a lack of the Holy Spirit in our lives, Lord, that there's more of him, Lord, that, uh, that we could have. Lord, I pray that during this time of worship, Lord, as we saw this morning, that we would simply ask, Lord, that we would ask in faith to be filled, Lord, that we would ask in faith for a refilling, Lord, of that upon experience. Lord, where your spirit is, is showered down upon us, Lord, to equip us to overflowing, Lord. And so I pray even as we worship, Lord, that that, that, that would be the prayer of anyone who desires it. If you're here this morning and, and you believe you need to receive more of the Holy Spirit in your lives, you can certainly come forward for prayer. There will be people up front that can pray for you. But you don't need to come forward. You can simply ask and you'll receive. And so we pray, Lord, that you would bless this time as we worship you now, Lord, that you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.